Okay, I think with that we're ready to get started. Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we are so thankful for your love to us today. Lord, our hearts are grateful and we just rejoice in you. Indeed, Lord, you are so enjoyable. We do delight in you, O God. We lift you up and praise you. We thank you for who you are, O God. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in our lives, in our hearts, in our families, in our marriages. We thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful among us and that it changes us and makes us like you. Lord, we just want to thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here and to look into your word today. I pray, Father God, that your word would go forth clear. I pray that you would impress it upon our hearts, Lord, that we would retain and understand the things which you are saying by your spirit to your church. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of just being able to gather here with all of your family. And Lord, we just thank you for the encouragement of the scriptures. And we thank you, Lord, for your great providence in our lives. We honor you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, we are again back in our study of Ephesians. And uh, before we get started this morning, uh, I wanted to just clarify something I was talking about last week, and I felt like it was really kind of unclear, the things I was saying. And if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Sometimes in the course of our open discussion, I briefly touch on some topics and then not really having enough time to really sit down and explain and go through and make that thing clear. Sometimes I leave and I feel like, well, I didn't do a real good job at that. And last week I was talking about fostering an atmosphere of accountability. And and it really isn't a part of the text of Ephesians, but we kind of got off on this thing. Uh, And and I wanted you to kind of see a couple of places in Scripture based on some things I said last week that uh, that I was talking about. And what I'm going to do this morning is point you to a couple of these Scriptures that refer to uh, the way we treat certain believers. And and then I'm going to leave that with you to study that. Um, The first was in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse... I'm going to start at verse 9. Really, verse 11 is the one I was referring to, Paul says to the um, Corinthians, they understand this is, the context of this is where Paul has put someone out of the fellowship. He has excommunicated somebody from the fellowship of the church because of their immoral behavior. And then he's going to kind of tell the Christians why he did that and, and give them a guideline in this. And Verse 9 he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swin- and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
you might remember when I was referring to that, this is the scripture I was referring to, and this is the context and the passage I was referring to in 1 Corinthians. Then if you'll turn over to 2 Thessalonians, you'll find a very similar instruction from Paul. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And in verse 6, he says this. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. You see that? You see a similarity there between that verse and the verse that we read in 1 Corinthians 5.11? Yes? Yes. Okay. I I think that this is something that is largely overlooked in the modern Christian church. And I think because of it, the the church really lacks an atmosphere of accountability. The church lacks an atmosphere of holiness and godly fear, if you will. Um, And I wanted you to see these scriptures that I was referring to in the passing of our conversation last week. And so I point them out this morning so that you can see that. Uh, I think that there is some understanding that needs to come with the practice of this, but I want you to see that it is a commandment for Christians not to associate with other Christians who call themselves Christians yet live in sin. We are a sanctified body of believing people who have come to Christ in repentance of sins. How can we live in it any longer? You with me? And so what I'm suggesting is that there should be an atmosphere among us of accountability. And there were different comments that were made that I thought were really good. Uh, Comments about having humility toward one another. Comments about, uh, you know, approaching one another in a spirit of gentleness and this kind of thing. But the idea is that we are our brother's keeper. And we are commanded in Scripture to keep our brother. That his life should be sanctified by our life. And that if one member of the body is suffering or is caught in sin, that those who are spiritual should seek to restore such a one. Okay? We cannot allow people to go on in their sin. It is destructive, not only for themselves, but also for the rest of the body. Okay? And so I, I, I kind of wanted to point these scriptures out and kind of get you familiar. If you follow your cross-references on those two scriptures, you'll find a plethora of things that you can study to kind of understand this, this, uh, this commandment of Paul more clearly. Okay? Any questions on that before I move on? Okay? All right. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. <coughs> Matthew chapter 16. And I wanted to remind you of these words of the Lord Jesus, which was his invitation to you to follow him. Verse 24, he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, 
he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of you, those who are standing here, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so here, Jesus' invitation for us to follow him. And it says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right? And here Jesus is calling for self-denial. And that self-denial is one of the fundamental characteristics of someone who desires to follow Christ. And he makes it really clear when he uses the portrait of a cross to kind of drive home his point. He says, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross, your cross, right? Which is the instrument of what? Death. Right? Take up the instrument of your own death in order to follow me. And if we just didn't get that quite clear when he said, deny yourself and take up your cross, then he makes it really clear by saying this. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he says, shall find it. So what's Christ calling you to do? To lose your life for his sake. Amen? So what does he mean by lose your life? Well, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. And in our text today, and indeed the next many times we get together and look at this, we're going to learn about what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross follow Christ. And it, the Apostle Paul gets very specific and very instructive in this section of text. I'm going to read from chapter 4, verse 20, uh, through chapter five, uh, 5, verse 5. Okay? There he says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Amen? So, here in this section of text, Paul's getting real practical about how we live the Christian life. And he is, if you will, involved in giving us a series of contrasts. And it's through these contrasts that he's teaching us these practical things about Christian life. And, um, you know, the the whole concept, the whole idea here in, in this practical portion of Ephesians is that we would learn how to take on the likeness of Christ. This is seen like in chapter 4, verse 20, where he says, you did not learn Christ this way, right? How did you learn Christ? And, of course, he tells us that we, we, uh, that in, in, in reference to our former manner of life, we were to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Remember, and I was just referring to Matthew, where he says to deny yourself and take up your cross and lose your life, okay? Well, here is that life that you are to deny. Here is that life that you are to crucify. Here is that life that you are to nail to that tree. Here is that life, that old self, which is to die. Okay? It is that self which is being corrupted by the lusts of deceit. That is led away and and falls into sin. It is that old man who desires to be fulfilled by sin. He must die so that the new man can live. And he says, And be renewed, there, verse 23, in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, he says, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And you know how we talked about the fact that we've we've all been regenerate, if we're truly a Christian. If we've been born again, we have been created in the likeness of God. And now the very nature of God lives inside our soul. In fact, that is who we are now. We are the beloved children of God who have His very nature as our nature. Therefore, we can no longer live after the old self. That old self must die. That old man must die. He must be crucified. Paul says, I am what? Crucified with Christ and I no longer live, he says. But Christ lives in me. Amen? That's the testimony of every born-again Christian. I have been crucified with Christ. We died with Him. Right? And we've been raised to what? Newness of life. In the likeness of His resurrection. In a glorified, powerful body. Amen? 
We have taken on the likeness of Christ. We have been created like Christ in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, we can no longer live after the old self. That old self must die. And this whole section of text is is really what he's saying. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, look what he says there. He says, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Friends, this is the whole purpose of salvation right here. That God would take us sinful men and transform us into the likeness of his son. Why? Because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. When God works a beautiful work, a beautiful workmanship, a beautiful masterpiece, what is it that he fashions? Something in the likeness of his self. Why? Because he is what is exceedingly glorious and most worthy of praise. Amen? So if he's going to change you into, into to be something that is glorious in his sight, what must you come to look like? Him. Amen? And that's the whole purpose of salvation right there. God is bringing many sons to glory. He's transforming us into his image. That we might become what? Imitators of God. Like that true person that we are in our nature, created in the likeness of God, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Amen? Friends, knowing this, we can no longer live in sin. We, we can no longer let the sun go down on our wrath. We can, we can steal no longer. We can no longer speak evil with corrupt communication. We can no longer slander or be bitter or clamorous or full of rage. We can no longer have malice in our hearts. Why? Because we are the beloved holy, righteous children of God. Amen? And that's what this whole section of text is about. And, and so Paul gives us these contrasts. He, he, the contrast of speaking lies or speaking truth. The contrast of, of stealing or working to share. The contrast of unwholesome words or edifying words. Right? And he's showing us that's what that old man was like, but this is how the new man lives. Right? The contrast of bitterness, <clears throat> wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice versus being kind, tender hearted, forgiving, imitating God, and living a life of love. Amen? It's the contrast of self versus Christ. What is the motivation of your thoughts? What is the motivation of your actions? What is the motivation of your words? Is it to please self or is it to please Christ? Because that self has got to die. Because it's being corrupted in the lusts of deceit. It's easily led away by, by sin. In fact, its nature is sinful. That's what the Bible calls the flesh. The sinful nature. The old self that's being crucified is by nature sinful. It is by nature an object of God's wrath. But he made us alive with Christ and raised us up and seated us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. 
Amen? And now we are no longer that old man. That old man must die. That self must die. Those selfish motivations must die. And now we have to live a life of love. Indeed, it should be our delight if we're the children of God. Amen? A life of sacrifice that's giving to others, that's seeking to edify, that's growing and seeking to build up, not tear down and destroy. Amen? And so this practical discussion in these verses is all about those things. It's all about putting self to death and letting the new man live. Okay? And so last week we talked about verses 25 through 27, which talks about laying aside evil speech. Right? Laying aside evil speech. And then also in verse 26 he says, Be angry and yet do not sin. And we talked about the fact that You know, there was a righteous kind of anger, an anger that was motivated by the right things, right? An anger that is motivated by righteousness and justice, and that's a good kind of anger. Paul's not saying, don't be angry. He's just saying, in your anger, do not sin. We talked about the motivation of anger, and that anger, if it's properly motivated, is proper. But then, of course, it requires a tremendous amount of meekness. And gentleness to control, that self-control of the Holy Spirit so that we control that anger. Amen? But he says, don't sin in your anger. And we talked about how anger can be very sinful if it's motivated selfishly. Anger can be very sinful if it's motivated by self. If we're thinking about ourself when we're angry. I'm angry because they said that to me or they offended me and... And, and it's all about what angers me because I am the one that's angry, okay, over something that is personally offensive to me. That's not righteous, motivated anger. We should be angry about sin. We should be angry about the dis- destructive nature of sin and what it does to those who practice it. We should be angry that people are harmed because of sin. We should be angry because sin is is unjust and it destroys and it damages and it hurts and it steals. Amen? And if you will, we're angry at the sin. We're angry at the devil, the tempter. We're angry at the flesh, which is so easily led astray by sin. Amen? And, and so there is a righteous anger, which is angry about the right things. Okay? And our anger, if it is there, should be that which is motivated by righteousness, not by selfishness. Amen? And again, in that little thing right there, you can see the contrast of self and Christ. Right? In the evil speech that he was talking about, laying aside all falsehood. He says, speak truth, each one of you. Right? And so the contrast of falsehood and truth. Well, now he goes on here in verses 28 through 30. And he says, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So here in verse 28, he he makes this statement, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Paul continues with a series of contrasts showing the difference between the old self and the new self. Here the old man of stealing must be put to death so that the new man of working to share can live. You see, if we're running around stealing, what are we thinking about? Right? I want that. Therefore, I will take that, whether or not it belongs to me or not. And I couldn't care less who it harms. Right? You see how selfishly motivated stealing is? It's all about self. Harm my neighbor for my good. That's what stealing is. That's what cheating is. Right? Same thing. Harm my neighbor for my good. Any kind of falsehood is that way. It's selfishly motivated. It's destructive. Okay? Christian can't do that any longer. Why? Because now the nature of God lives inside his heart. The last thing in the world he wants to do is harm his neighbor. Amen? Instead, he wants to edify his neighbor. He wants to build up his neighbor. He wants to make a sacrifice for his neighbor. Namely, working hard with his own hands so that he may have something to share. Why? Because the desire of his heart is Christ. He's no longer selfishly motivated. He's motivated by love. He's motivated by giving. He's motivated by, by encouraging and, and, and lifting others up and doing what builds them up. Amen? He's motivated by self-sacrifice. Look, the mature Christian is waiting for an opportunity to sacrifice himself for someone else's benefit. As a matter of fact, That's the kind of life they live, like he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Live a life of love. That's what he says. Walk in love. And then he just makes it real clear what kind of love he's talking about. Just as Jesus gave himself up for us as a sacrifice and offering to God. That's how we live. Christians live a life of sacrifice, reaching out and loving others. Amen? And so you see how stealing is so contrary to that. Stealing is absolutely contrary to love. Right? Stealing is very selfishly motivated. Right? But love pleases his neighbor for his good. Amen? Love is not, 1 Corinthians 13, self-seeking. Right? Okay? <clears throat> the sin of stealing is selfishly motivated and cares not for those who are its prey. The new self is focused on others by working hard to have plenty so that he or she can share with others. Notice this godly virtue of mercy which seeks to meet the needs of others by its own sacrifice. Consider when a Christian truly has a desire in their heart to work so that they can have plenty, so that they can share. Consider how that heart is motivated by mercy. You know what mercy is, right? 
Mercy is the, the meeting of needs to the needy. Mercy is an act of meeting needs for those who have needs. Okay? And so think about the Christian attitude that wants to share with others who have need. That's the mercy of God living within us. Okay? You see how contrary stealing is to mercy? You see how selfishly motivated stealing is? Look what stealing does. Not only is it focused on fulfilling itself, but in order to accomplish that, it's willing to take from someone else. You see how that's just the opposite of love, of mercy, of reaching out to meet the need of another? Amen? Okay. Then he goes on. And here he was talking about the deeds of stealing and of working to share. And now again he focuses on some words. One of the things you see woven throughout these passages are what we'll call thoughts, words, and actions. Okay? These are the, uh, these, these are the things that, that we always live in. We, live, we think all the time, right? We speak with our mouth. And we do things with our hands. And this is the way we sin against God. We sin in thought, word, and deed. Okay? And when Paul gets real practical, okay, he's starting to talk about the things we think about, the things we say, and the things we do with our hands. Okay? Thoughts, words, and actions. And these contrasts are contrasts all about thoughts, words, and actions. Right? And so here in in, um, verse 29, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Hear the contrast of evil speaking and holy words. Paul puts an end to all such speech as is unwholesome. He uses this, this word, unwholesome. This is a Greek word, sapros, and it means rotten, corrupt. It's a word that describes something that is is decaying. Okay? He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Any words which are not good for building someone up are not to be spoken by the new man of righteousness. On the contrary, now we speak the truth in love, as we learned back in verse 15, which causes the body to be built up and grow in all all aspects unto him. Think about this contrast. Speaking evil, saying unwholesome things. Imagine the motivation of a mouth that would take the name of God in vain. What is going on in the heart of one who would take the name of God in vain? I mean, you kind of get a picture of sin when you think about such a thing. What is it in the heart of man that he would curse the holy God? The glorious, wonderful, majestic, beautiful Savior, the Lord Jesus. What is going on in the heart of somebody who takes the name of Jesus Christ in vain? 
I want to tell you it's something very selfish and something very dark. It is something truly abhorrent. Okay? And there isn't a one of us that hasn't broken that commandment. And there's something in there that's really ugly that would even revile the glorious name of the one who bought us. Let it never be said of a Christian that we would take the name of the Lord in vain. Think about unwholesome words. What are they? I think of the word profanity describes unwholesome words. Profanity. What's the root word of profanity? Profane. What does profane mean? Vile. It's a good word. Blaspheme. No, profane doesn't mean blaspheme. Profane means abominable. What did you say? Anything that's not holy. Okay, unholy. That's a good word for profane. It's abominable. It certainly has a flavor of unholiness, right? Because it's speaking of that which is holy. Profane is in contrast to that which is holy, right? So when we have like cuss words, four-letter words, things like that, that's why we call them profanity. Why? Because they're unholy. They're profane. And I think what they do is they blaspheme, right? It's kind of the... It's kind of what they do. When you, when you speak profanity, you blaspheme the name of God. Right? You say, I don't have enough regard in my heart for God that I'm going to clean up my mouth. Right? You think that's something that's going to characterize somebody who's going to stand before the holy throne of God? Right? When we come before the Lord... God in heaven, highly lifted up and exalted on his throne, and open our mouth and speak profanity? <clears throat> Can you imagine what it must be like then? If you really are the temple of the living God, that place wherein he lives by his spirit, that you would use profanity on your lips? Think about what that says. That's profane. Amen? The word in the Greek is sapros. It's like a stinking rotten apple on the ground. It's been there for days. Remember Maxine and I last year, we got this big apple tree in the backyard. <clears throat> this thing is huge, man. It makes it makes over a thousand apples. And uh, pretty soon they all start falling on the ground. You can't pick them fast enough. And uh, so we got this, you know, you got those big old trash cans from the city, and we got back there, and we, we, a couple of times, we picked up all the apples. Well, one time, we picked up the apples on Tuesday, and the uh, dump uh, guy doesn't come until Monday. So them apples sat in that can in the hot summer all week long. And when you get a whiff <laughs> of what is in that can, let me tell you something. You talk about rotten vinegar. Man, it is utterly profane. <laughs> right? 
That's that's what describes this this uh, this word that describes what should never come from our mouth. Rotten, decaying, okay, unwholesome, right? And and just so we get the the contrast, here's what Paul says about it. Nothing that's unwholesome, but only that which is good for the building up of others, right? So now you can really begin to see what is it that motivates your words. When we speak words that are just complaining about another, and and we all do it. I I can think of a time this week when I uh, was saying something about somebody else that was really selfishly motivated. I was just complaining. And I had a brother that pointed that out to me and how... Uh, it just it really just kind of cut me to the heart. And I was kind of mourning in my prayers <laughs> the rest of the week about that. And just, just thinking about, how, you know, how easy it is for us to just, to just sit and, and just complain. And to just say things that don't edify anybody and don't build anybody up. And Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I want to know what's going on down in there. If all we have to do is complain. And all we have to do is to say things that are profane. And all we have to do is say things that tear others down and are destructive by nature. What's going on inside the heart? Pride. Pride. Selfishness. Amen? That's not love. That's not the nature of God. And so what do we do? We put it away. We count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Amen? We have to do this if we're Christians. Why? Because the nature of God lives in us. Because we are the children of God. Because we are those who do live in heaven. Our citizenship is not here in this world. We are not profane and unholy. Instead, we are what? Holy and blameless in His sight. Amen? We've been redeemed. We've had the surpassing riches of God's grace poured out upon our heads. We've had every sin that we've ever committed in our life plunged in the deepest part of the sea. How can we go on living like this any longer? You with me? And this has to be the cry of our heart. If we're ever going to get this practice down, inside our heart we have got to hate evil and love what is good. And constantly seek after it and pursue it. Amen? And when we hear unwholesome words, we ought to be repulsed by it. Amen? God help us. God help that spirit of God to to just be living and vibrant inside our hearts. God help us that our minds are renewed with His truth every morning. So that we think like He thinks. So that we can speak like He speaks and do what he does. Amen? And so Paul makes it really clear. No unwholesome word to proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification according to the need of the moment. You know, like back in verse 15 of chapter 4 where he says, but now we are to speak the truth in love. Look what it says. Chapter 4, verse 15. He 
He says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. What does speaking the truth do? It edifies. It builds up. It causes the body to be built up and grow. You see that? And this is what ought to be coming out of our mouth. Words that edify. Words that are filled with the mind and the heart of God. Words that lift up God. Instead of, instead of taking the Lord's name in vain, we ought to walk around speaking forth the praises of Him who called us out of darkness. His praise should continually be on our lips. That's what the psalmist says, right? We're a whole new creation. We are Jesus' new creation. We can no longer speak evil. Amen? We ought to speak the truth in love. And look what that does. It edifies. It builds up. It strengthens. Okay? And look what he says here. He's kind of going on with these contrasts. No falsehood, right? No, no falsehood, but instead speaking the truth. And then in your anger do not sin. And then he says don't steal any longer, but work to share. And then he says no unwholesome words, but only those which are edifying. Look what he says. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Look what he's saying. He's saying the Spirit of God lives in you. How can you grieve him? The Spirit of God is there inside your heart that God put there. And that is a seal for your day of redemption. That God was so merciful to you that he would set you aside and call you your own and put his own seal on you. Saying, this one is mine. How can we grieve that spirit which lives in us? Amen? You see how utterly sinful sin is? It would even deceive us that we might grieve this glorious, gracious spirit of God that lives in our heart. Amen? So we should, we should fear. We should have reverence for that holiness of God to the point where we won't grieve Him. Do you think you might behave differently if you were standing before the throne? You know, if you actually saw yourself in the presence of God, if you could stand, <laughs> doubtful you could, John couldn't. Daniel couldn't. Isaiah couldn't. Right? They saw God and immediately all... Isaiah sees God and he says, Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Right? He sees these angels flying around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Imagine the picture. And Isaiah sees God and he just falls on his face. And now the Bible says that we are the dwelling of God where he lives by his spirit. That we are that holy temple of God. We are the place where he lives. We can't grieve that spirit. 
I mean, think of all the grace that God has shown us, all the mercy, all the love. Think of the forgiveness, how God has forgiven us again and again and again. The last thing in the world we want to do is grieve him. And think about what this says about the heart of God. Think about what's being said here. Here we are told not to grieve the Holy Spirit by our unholy words or thoughts or actions. Here the moral or commanded will of God is expressed in terms of his great desire to see us thinking, speaking, and acting in a manner worthy of our calling. Think what it says. If, if the Holy Spirit is grieved when you steal, or the Holy Spirit is grieved when you speak an unholy or a profane word, what does that say about the heart of God and his great desire for our, our holiness and, and our, our, our pure, truthful speaking and our pure, holy thoughts? Think how badly God desires that, that we be holy in our thoughts, words, and actions, that when we don't do it, he's grieved. What is that saying about God? God is an emotional being. Very much like us. We've been created in his likeness. Amen? Except God's emotions aren't tainted by sin. Amen? What does it say about the heart of God? The heart of God is grieved by the sin of his people. You ever read the book of Lamentations? Anybody know what a lament is? What's a lament? I'm sorry? A song? What about that song? What is a song of lament? Sad, mourning, sorrow. Ever read the book of Lamentations? You hear the heart of God lamenting the sins of his people. You know, lamenting is something that is very common in the Bible. Think of all the lamenting that God does in the Bible. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've read the whole Bible and you know what the whole Bible says. (laughs) And over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible, God is lamenting the sins of his people. So we should begin to think about sin the way God thinks about sin. And we should begin to mourn and lament over our sins just like God does. And think consistently the way he thinks. And feel consistently with the way he feels. And here in this context, he's grieved by our unwholesome thoughts, words, and actions. Amen? And let that be a motivating force in your thoughts. Think about what God thinks about. So when you find yourself caught in these sins, consider the heart of God. Think like God thinks. Amen? And I guarantee you, it'll be a tremendous motivating factor in your life to keep your thoughts, words, and actions from sinning against God. You know, if you, if you, if you see some... Uh, thing that's tempting you to sin, whatever it may be, whether it be your anger or your wrath or your slander or your malice or, you know, uh, any, any kind of thing that may be tempting you to sin. 
Before you do it, consider for a moment how God is going to feel about it. And think about whether or not you're willing to pay that price of grieving your Lord who gave his life for you before you commit that sin. Just think if you could go throughout your day thinking that moment by moment. What a motivating factor that would be to keep you from sinning against God. Amen? It's important to understand what the scripture is saying here. Don't grieve the heart of God. God is grieved by the sin of his people. He's holy. And he lives in us. And we're holy. Amen? So what does Paul say? He says, you're holy, so don't grieve the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. Jerry? I, I just wanted to say that when I came to the Lord uh, years ago, uh, my sin was so crushing that um, when I got saved, I cried and cried and cried and cried because my sin was so damning and so oppressive to me that I was broken hearted over my sin and uh, I remember one time I was working this uh, prayer room at another church they had a, a prayer room that was manned 24 by 7 and the different members of the church would take an hour and Someone would always be in the prayer room and had a telephone, yada, yada, yada. And uh, I was working one evening, and I was uh, on the ground on my knees crying over my sin. And somebody was giving a tour to the church that evening, and they just opened the, the door to the prayer room, and there I was, a puddle. And all these people were looking at me, and they were just kind of like, Dumbfounded. The guy who was leading the tour didn't know what to say. And you know, the thing is, is we take sin so lightly. When was the last time you cried because you offended God? Over some little thing because you hated it. I'm going to be honest with you, and I hate to admit this. I took the Lord's name in vain several months ago. I just lost my temper and I said, GD. And let me tell you something that haunted me for a long time because I knew that I hurt my Savior when I did that. And you know, we just take sin so lightly. A broken and contrite heart, the Lord will not despise. Amen. So when you go to the Lord in the mornings when you do your quiet time, man, let's hope you're shedding some tears because the day before you blew it and you know it. And you're broken over your sins. That's what God's looking for. Okay? We walk around puffed up because we didn't kill anyone. We didn't rape anyone. And we didn't commit adultery. We feel pretty good about that. But the Lord says, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. He, he looks at sin a little bit differently than we do. And I have to go to the Lord and I shed some tears every now and then because I'm truly sorrowful over my sins. And thank God His grace is greater than my sin. Amen. And so then the instruction of the Apostle, <coughs> do not grieve the Spirit of God. 
don't grieve him. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, who mourn over their sin, who are broken and contrite before God. Amen? I'm thinking in Psalm 51 that says, the sacrifices of God are broken in a contrite spirit. God says, I'm done with your goats and your bulls. Don't bring me any more sacrifices. He says, the sacrifice I want to see is a broken heart. Amen? Broken over the right things. If we were grieved over our sin with God, we'd be a lot further down the road. Amen? So, thus, see the heart of God here in this verse of Scripture. God is grieved by the sins of His people. Carol? The more we study and learn from His Word about the holiness of God, the more we are grieved over our sin, and the more we see it. Amen. Because we view uh, it against the holy God. It becomes a very fearful and troubling within us and knowing that lays there. Amen. And if we don't view sin as uh, we don't despise the sin that lives, we're, we're not really learning about God and His holiness. Amen. Amen. I, I think as we grow and mature, the greater revelation that we get of God in our true knowledge of God, the greater we are grieved over our own sins and the more we mourn. And, uh, and not only over our own sins, but also over the sins of others. We mourn. We see people's lives ravaged by sin. That should cause us to mourn. It should move our heart with compassion. Amen? Look what he says here, though. <clears throat> he, he says don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But look what he says. For who you were sealed... I'm sorry, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I'm not sure if you remember, but back in <laughs> chapter 1, I think it's uh, verse 13. Paul says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Remember we talked about sealing, that this, this work of the Holy Spirit, which the Bible calls sealing, and we said that that sealing was with a view, right? With a, It's looking forward to what? In chapter 1, it's looking forward to... Our inheritance and the redemption of God's possession. It's a view looking forward to that day of what? Well, here in chapter 4, verse 30, that day of redemption. You were sealed for the day of redemption. What does this mean, that the Holy Spirit has sealed us? Well, who, who is familiar with the concept of a seal in the first century? If someone was to talk about being sealed in the first century, what would that refer to? It was something very common back then. Not not in this day and age, but it was then. Sealing a letter with wax? 
sealing a letter with wax. Okay, and what 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 was the characteristics about that, Joe? Okay. Okay. So, so like for instance, uh, a king would send out an edict, and he would write that edict on a scroll, and before it, he would seal it in wax. Right, Karen? What were you gonna say? Well, I'm not sure. Ownership that okay. belongs to them. That exactly. That they have authority. Right. You know, they have the authority over me. Amen. So ownership is what I can. Exactly right. All of these concepts are what is going on with the word sealing, okay? And so let's, let's take our example a little further. King writes an edict on a scroll. He takes a scroll. Before he sends it out, what does he do? He puts his seal on it. And how does he put his seal? He takes his signet ring, right? What is a signet ring? It's a signature, right? It's just like if you had a signature. If I sign something with my name, what am I saying? This thing I'm signing is consistent with my thoughts. This thing I'm signing is consistent with me, right? Um, The signet ring also, uh, you know, said, these are my words. I own these. This is my possession. This is my scroll. This is my edict. If it had the signet of the king, right, when the guy came to read it, the first thing he did was say, hey, here's an edict from the king, and here is the king's signet, right? So before I go reading these words, let everyone here know these are the words of the king. Amen? It's ownership. It's possession. It's his sign. Right? And so uh, so this, this signature, this sealing, God is the Holy Spirit, is the seal unto the day of redemption. What is he doing when he seals us? Well, that's God's signature. That's God's signet being placed on the... On, on the uh, Believer, but but understand this thing, what it says. You know, the sealing, when the king's scroll was sealed, it was not to be broken until that scroll was to be read for the specific people it was intended. Right? And that's what the seal was for. So that when it arrived in the other place, you could see if it was unbroken, what it meant, right? So there's this whole concept of sealing where that seal was supposed to remain sealed until it got to the intended recipients, at which time they could see that the seal was unbroken and that no one got in there and, and falsified the words. It was authentic and real. It was authentic. It was real. Now think of all of the things that this sealing means by the Spirit of God on the believer. And you also look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, 20 through 22. Same concept there. It's a sealing, uh, it's a pledge guaranteeing our inheritance. It's looking with a view toward the day of redemption when our bodies are redeemed from this body of sin. And the sealing, if you will, is saying that God is saying, I have sealed this thing and it's not going to be opened up until we're going to be redeemed. And it's got God's seal on it. It's got His signature. Think what that says about you. That God has marked you with a seal. Now I want to ask you, who's going to reverse that? Who who has authority over the signet of God? Not life or death or angels or demons or principalities or suffering or nakedness or famine or things present or things to come. Or life or death or any other thing shall separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. 
Listen, if Christ Jesus has already justified you, who's going to bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Amen? I, I love these comments from William Bur- Burkitt. Look, listen to what he says about sealing. But what doth God sealing his people by his Holy Spirit intimate and imply? Number one, it intimates that God has distinguished them from others. Right? So if you will, some are sealed and others aren't. Who are sealed? Those who after hearing the gospel, having also believed, were sealed. Right? Those who believe the gospel are sealed. Right? They're distinguished from those who didn't what? Believe the gospel. Right? You've been sealed. You've been distinguished from others. It, uh, number two, that he has appropriated them to himself. He's put his own sign of authority upon you, like Karen was saying. You're God's possession. You have his seal on you. Amen? Jesus says, I know my sheep, and my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me wherever I go. You are Jesus' sheep. You belong to the good shepherd. He says, I shall lose none of them of all that the Father has given me, but I shall raise them up at the last day. Amen? That's John 6, by the way. Right about verse 38 or so. Uh, Number three, that he has put a value upon them in a very high esteem. Consider what it means. That holy God in heaven has put his seal on you. I would call that very high esteem. Wouldn't you? I would think if now I can be called by the term saint, holy one, I'd say there's something valuable about that. Wouldn't you? I'm God's own possession. Matter of fact, I'm his son. I'd say that is value. I'd say that is very high esteem. That God has now counted me worthy. Even placing his Holy Spirit inside of me. Now I am the temple of God. What can, can Are there words that can describe the value of such a thing? Certainly there is not. He also says here, it imports the irrevocable purpose of God for their salvation. I don't know if you see this in the concept of sealing, but to me it's crystal clear. When, when God so moves inside your heart as to draw you to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> grants you faith and repentance so that you can believe the gospel and turn away from your sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your master and your savior. And he takes his Holy Spirit and implants it in your soul. I would say that based on the totality of Scripture, that there is good evidence that that is an irrevocable work of God which shall never be overturned. Why? Because it is the Lord's doing. And who can say, why have you done this, God? Or who is going to reverse the purpose of God? And if you have become one of Jesus' sheep, you tell me how he is going to fail in leading you and guiding you unto the green pasture of heaven. Does Jesus make mistakes? When God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified you, did he mess up somehow? Did he miss along the way? 
Was he waiting for your obedience or something before he could finally say, okay, all right, I'll bless that one. Friends, if that's what he's waiting for, we're all still in our sins. Amen? Amen. The ceiling, most definitely, is a portrait of the irrevocable purpose of God and salvation. You're sealed for what? The day of redemption. And that scroll ain't going to be opened up until you're standing in glory. And then when he opens up and reads it, you know what he's going to say? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know why he's going to say that? Because you got there by the merit of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Glorious, glorious truth, this sealing. Right? Seals are for these uses, ends, and purposes. Seals are for distinction, for appropriation, for confirmation, and argue a high evaluation and precious esteem of the person or thing which the seal is put upon. Amen? With that, I suppose we'll knock off till next week. Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we are so grateful for your precious Holy Spirit, which has been deposited in our hearts as a pledge, even a guarantee of our inheritance, of that wonderful day of redemption, Lord, when we are given a glorious body, even like unto your glorious body. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to this great light of sealing. Help us to see and know and understand. Then, Lord, also I pray that our hearts would be shaped like your heart, O God. I pray that we would be grieved over our sins, even as you are grieved over our sins. I pray that we would be grieved over the sins of others and the destruction that is wrought by sin. Lord, I pray that we would begin to hate evil, even as you hate evil. And, Lord, that we would love what is good even as you do so that we may even be motivated to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving and walking in love. Father, I pray that these characteristics would begin to take on our life, that you would give us strength, Lord, to put that old man to death and may it be said of us in our practice that we are crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Lord, let that be our banner. Father, let it be the the desire of our heart. God, let it be our focus and our drive that we would be crucified with Christ and that he would live in us. Lord, we thank you for all of these glorious, rich, encouraging scriptures. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.